0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out what's behind the resurrection of former discount retail giant Zellers. The Hudson's Bay Company says it will bring back the brand next year online and in existing Bay stores. So why now? And will nostalgia translate into any kind of success? We meet an Afghan-Canadian journalist who's helped launch a project to bring Afghan women out of the shadows imposed by the Taliban a year ago now to share their stories and their struggles. But first, we speak to Wounded Warriors Canada about anger and concern over reports that a combat veteran with a traumatic brain injury and PTSD was given unsolicited and unwanted advice about medical assistance in dying by a Veterans Affairs Canada employee. And we take a closer look at the rules around medical assistance in dying in this country.
1: When a Canadian veteran picked up the phone and called Veterans Affairs Canada to get treatment for his
0: combat-related PTSD and a traumatic brain injury, he expected help getting better and getting his life back. Instead, he got an unexpected and unwanted offer to help him end it through medically assisted death. Multiple sources have told Global News the veteran was shocked. The agent on the other end of the phone raised MAID as an alternative to treatment, out of the blue. In a statement to Global News, VAC confirmed the allegation, saying the department was recently made aware of an incident involving a veteran client and a Veterans Affairs Canada employee, where medical assistance in dying was discussed inappropriately. VAC deeply regrets what transpired. That uh, Part of that report from Mercedes Stevenson last night, of course, this raises a lot of concerns. Now, uh, Veterans Affairs has looked into it. They say that uh, Medical assistance in dying was discussed inappropriately. They're investigating in a statement they said, providing advice pertaining to medical assistance in dying is not a VAX service. Uh, They have no mandate. Employees have no mandated role to recommend medical assistance in dying to veteran clients. They deeply regret what has transpired. But it has certainly raised alarm bells for a number of reasons for veterans groups. And joining me now is retired Captain Phil Ralph, who's Director of Health Services with Wounded Warriors Canada. Thank you for your time tonight.
1: Oh, glad to be on. Thank you.
0: I mean, th- this one kind of boggles the mind, doesn't it, a bit? What was your initial reaction when you were first told about this?
1: Well, I mean, as as the reaction across the country has been uh, from veterans and from just, you know, anybody who's heard this story, it was just plain wrong.
0: Yeah, not, uh, I mean... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine what would have prompted it, uh, but certainly Veterans Affairs have come out and said it was inexcusable, or at least they're investigating it. Is that enough of a response as far as you're concerned?
1: Well, it, it probably highlights the fact that, I mean, you have caseworkers uh, all, all throughout the department, and it really asks, it begs the question as to what kind of training is, is uh, given to these um, caseworkers, and, uh, and do they really understand uh, the clientele they're talking to? I mean, one of the things we know uh, at Windu Warriors Canada is that, uh, you know, when somebody reaches out for help, we, we've done a lot of work in this country on, on telling people to uh, reach out when they, when they have difficulty, when they have problem, to ask for help. But then the key thing is when that individual uh, reaches out for help, what then is the response? Because you often only get one chance to respond properly. And in this case, obviously, it was completely the wrong response.
0: You make a, Obviously, you know this and you make a great point. Uh, often mm-hmm. the decision to reach out for help is, is one that takes a long time. And the expectations when one does is that there will be help on the other end of the line when they pick up that phone.
1: Yes. And, and that's why, I mean, we... I mean, Wounded Warriors Canada is a national mental health service provider for veterans, first responders, and their families. Uh, traditionally, we have been in the downstream treatment program and, and group residential uh, clinically facilitated programming, but we've noticed in the last number of years, and particularly throughout the COVID period, that uh, more things need to be done upstream, and particularly in creating trauma-informed workplaces and In in those that are uh, helping uh, in the veteran and first responder community to understand the culture of how veterans and first responders think and the help that they need directly. So that's why we are offering training um, to people that are put in those positions because often um, these are people that don't particularly understand the unique way that veterans and first responders think.
0: Yeah, tell me about that, because I guess the concern is not, I mean, the discussion in general, as you mentioned, was wrong. Uh, the fact that it was presented unprompted is probably where the real concern lies here, right? Um, tell me a bit about just about what needs to be known when when soldiers and first responders reach out for this kind of help.
1: Well, I mean, we we need to... You know, we need to have a trauma lens on things and and an appropriate response, and that takes training. You know, the, the once somebody reaches out, what's the so what? What follows that? Um, you know, what questions need to be asked? I, I have no idea who this particular caseworker was, uh, what their what their training is, and and whether or not uh, you know they were in a position where they just felt they didn't have an answer and. And, and, and just, you know, reacted instinctively, inappropriately and wrongly. But it, it really asked the question, what what kind of training really is there?
0: Uh, so listeners understand the impact that that could have yeah. on someone who is reaching out for help, uh, may not have the answers themselves, are looking to someone mm-hmm. for those answers. And then the topic of, of medically, uh, medical assistance in dying is brought up.
1: Yeah, and, and you're talking about some of the most vulnerable people. Uh, I mean, we know statistics, uh, you know, uh, have borne out over the over the last decade or so that um, the rate of uh, those that uh, lose their life due to suicide among veterans and first responders is higher than the general population, and so you have to be particularly um, Oh, I'm trying to trying to think of the exact well, word. It, it, it tuned in, right? Yeah, yeah tuned in, we're, we're aware. understanding, aware of of where these people are coming from, and and the you know the very fact that that any person, um, even regardless of of their training, and you know we we need to do a lot more on the training side, would even suggest that to a vulnerable person is just unconscionable.
0: Is there concern that this is not an isolated case and, and and if you had any reaction today just at your organization about this
1: well it 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 you know i mean over the years uh you know we we have fielded many calls on you know how uh, veterans veterans affairs um you know treats its clients and and how their the response has been and you know there there are lots of anecdotal um horror stories out there and uh, veterans and and those that care for veterans have always been concerned that they get the right response uh, because it's a a large bureaucratic organization that can be very daunting to somebody who's struggling particularly with a mental health issue. So, you know, again, um, we need to educate um, those that uh, are on that front line to answer those calls on just what is culturally appropriate response to somebody who is struggling with uh, issues surrounding trauma, and particularly uh, those that you know are, are affected adversely by an operational stress injury such as PTSD.
0: I'm sure it would be helpful to know, I guess, if there had been other cases like this, though. Just to just to find yeah. out whether this was a one-off or whether this was something that was sort of creeping into the kind of services that were being offered to veterans who called.
1: Well, I mean, as as Mercedes, uh, you know, reported, the, the department has uh, issued a statement, and and the minister has said it's unacceptable. So, I mean, that is a, a hopeful sign to recognize that it was plain. Let the department is not um, uh, you know, giving any excuses, which is. A hopeful sign, I guess, in some ways. But uh, yeah, uh, is this an isolated case? I mean, we really don't know.
0: Retired Captain Phil Ralph, Director of Health Services with Wounded Warriors, is with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, an incident where a veteran called in for, to Veterans Affairs for for, some, for help. Uh, he was suffering from a traumatic brain injury and PTSD, and he was offered unsolicited advice about uh, medical medical assistance in dying and just some of the concerns surrounding that. Um, Phil, over the last several years, there's been a lot of talk about, about awareness, about mental health for veterans uh, and just the challenges they face, and, and, and a lot of problems promises for improvements, Uh, how are we doing?
1: Well, it depends on which areas you're looking in. I mean, one of the things uh, that that we have seen, I mean, one of the things that came out and when we're talking about this particular issue, when we were talking about training before the break, uh, one of the things that we've developed as an internal resource, realizing that there hasn't been enough um, culturally appropriate training out there, is we launched a a site um, called Warrior Health, that's a resource not only for uh, resources for veterans and uh, first responders that are str- and their families that are struggling but uh, but another side that that addresses those that are giving them care uh, one of the uh, resources that we developed uh, in this past year is uh, introduction to trauma exposed professionals it's a it's an online course it was developed in conjunction and with funding from Atlas which is uh, you know, many people would know as the Center of Excellence for PTSD. That was their former name uh, in Ottawa, out of the out of the, the Royal Hospital, there, or the Royal Royal Hospital in Ottawa. And uh, you know, we we developed this program and uh, uh, put it online and offered it as a resource. And uh, Atlas uh, graciously funded uh, 500 uh, free spots to those that are giving care to veterans across the country. And I can tell you that, it, that the number of individuals that uh, responded to that program, we now have, and this is just in the first uh, month and a half by word of mouth and Facebook and other things, we, we have upwards of 400 uh, healthcare providers of all kinds, from, from chiropractors all the way to, to psychologists that have been doing this work for years, uh, enrolled in this program, taking this program. And, and we're just, you know, raising the bar on awareness, and but not just awareness, but understanding of just what language is appropriate, how to how to speak to things, um, and, and so this is the kind of innovation that needs to be done. Um, you know, we've also we as an organization, um, you know, in the last couple of weeks, even prior to this, have been in contact with uh, the department and offering the you know whatever we can do to help and to train and to offer the resources that we have um because we've developed some expertise in this area uh to assist uh, the department in responding in a uh, professional and culturally appropriate way uh we're we stand ready to help
0: i guess if there's any small silver lining in all this is that we're talking about it again
1: yeah and, and talking you know um you know, often in these stories, we we could focus on the negative part, but let's let's talk about what 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 can we do to improve this situation. And you know, introduction to trauma-exposed professionals that you know is is uh, uh, you know, you're you're out there on the west coast. Uh, we're fortunate that uh, I think one of the foremost areas uh, and experts in this area is is located on the west coast, and he happens to be um, you know our. One of our national uh, clinical advisors, Dr. Tim Black at the University of Victoria, um, you know, he's been working in this field for years. He's developed many of our programs and upstream programs and the kind of uh, psychoeducation that he's giving, not only in, in the treatment programs that we offer for veterans and first responders, but now in particular to those that are giving care so that they uh, respond appropriately. Um, you know, I I'm located here in the province of Ontario and uh we we've been working with the the Solicitor General in in the first responder world and, and offering uh treatment. And, and finally and on the workman's compensation area, they they've developed a specialty program just for first responders, understanding that they uh see the world differently, as do veterans.
0: Phil Ralph, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Well,
1: Thank
0: you. Well, medical assistance in dying became legal in this country in 2016. There were further amendments passed in 2021 that broadened who could request the procedure. Another change allowing people with mental disorders to access assisted dying is set to go into effect in March of next year. Now, according to polls, the majority of Canadians do support access to doctor-assisted suicide. And the system continues, all told, to function pretty well uh, in the majority of cases, I'm told. But the kind of example we pointed out in the last half hour does raise and highlight some growing concerns around the impact of making it available as an option for those suffering from inadequate care or other issues that are more about quality of life. It's a complex issue. There are absolutely no simple answers, but joining me now to help tackle some of them is bioethicist Carrie Bowman. He's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, for talking to us about this important issue.
2: Happy to do so, Ben.
0: Just your reaction to this story, the one we've been talking about, uh, where it appears a Canadian military veteran was offered, uh, you know, advice on medical assistance in dying unsolicited. Uh, and that's obviously caused some issues, but this is not a new, this is this is not a new issue. Um, but what was your reaction when you saw that story?
2: Yeah. You know, one of horror, to be honest with you, um, you know, a, a Canadian veteran and someone who's living with, Uh, the effects of a brain injury is is really now look if the person asked and the person said you know I'm Canadian and what is this and how does it work that's a different story but as you said clearly in your intro unsolicited you know this is a vulnerable person and you know it's very it can be very hard to distinguish when you have any kind of professional as, as to what is an option and what is a recommendation. And it could easily be seen as a recommendation. So So people that are living you know with depression anxiety, and you know brain trauma, I have seen brain trauma directly working in hospitals and I've seen it with veterans as well. This is a serious situation. and I, I feel it's utterly inappropriate to be raising this unsolicited. Now, again, if the person said, you know, what are my options uh, with medical assistance in dying? That's a fair question. And there may be no options. I don't know. I don't know this. I don't know the case. But, you know, you would have an obligation uh, to answer those questions, assuming you're qualified to answer those questions. Right. But but unsolicited is is the key here. And, you know, in Canada, we don't have any laws or even rules related to this in many cases. You know, other places like some of the states of Australia, um, you know, it's, it's actually illegal to bring this up if it's unsolicited. But in Canada, we, it, it's open. I do not believe from an ethical point of view, there could be a few exceptions to this, but that it should ever be brought, brought up if it's unsolicited. It sounds like advice. And with vulnerable people, uh, it's not the right thing to do.
0: Veterans Affairs have clearly uh, already apologized for this and recognized that it was a grave mistake. Uh, does that go far enough for you?
2: Yeah, but what's to say it's not going to happen again? And, you know, what, what we're really seeing here is is beyond veterans, um, there's a large pattern that's been surfacing, you know, a, as the laws related to medical assistance and dying have expanded of the question of vulnerability. And I think a lot of people, including me to some extent, I don't think I'm the worst offender, uh, were fairly naive or quite naive actually in the early days of medical assistance and dying. Many people thought we can really parcel off vulnerability. We can ask key questions, we can do great assessments, and we're not gonna have to worry about vulnerability. And when I say vulnerability, I'm talking about poverty, I'm talking about mental illness, I'm talking about anxiety, depression, all of those types of things. We can control for that. Well, you know what? We're not doing a very good job of it. Um, look at the cases that are emerging. And now we're receiving international attention in a negative way, including the United Nations. And you know, I, I think we really have to take a long, hard look nationally at the question of medical assistance and dying in relation to these levels of vulnerability.
0: Just so listeners understand, uh, this was, I believe, court mandated that the government go back to the drawing board and expand, or at least take what was existing and expand some of these, uh, those who qualified, but it, it's, it's a very tricky thing to do. And I'm wondering, I know you're not opposed to the legislation itself, but uh, but it feels like it needs refining. And and when you're talking about an issue this sensitive, refining is a tough task.
2: It's a very tough task. And although I wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm very ambivalent on this, to be honest with you. And I, I go back, you know, decades and working in end of life care. It's been a big element of my entire career. And, and, you know, although I was supportive, I was always ambivalent about this, um, and I'm still supportive because the majority of cases are coming from people with catastrophic illnesses that are absolutely profoundly grateful that they have this option, as are their families. But look, that does not mean everyone and what's been happening in the last few years is is this tent of inclusion is just getting bigger and bigger and it's not over yet next year will be mental health and you know it will probably keep expanding and, and I think the many, many people that have been incredibly supportive of medical assistance in dying, it's time that many of them, including me, uh, become much more humble and say, how are we going to deal with these deep ethical questions of vulnerability? Because to simply say we can parcel it off and deal with it case by case, it does not seem to be working very well at all.
0: Uh, and, and I guess that's what we're seeing. I mean, we understood that those of us, uh, you know, the many in this country, in fact, a vast majority in this country support some form of medical assistance in dying, understanding yeah. it as you've just described it. Um, also understanding that the courts demand under the Charter of Rights that that these be expanded by. Uh, but it feels like it has to be done in a way that where where we understand what the downside could be. Now, the safeguards that are in place are, are are they not enough anymore? Are they not? I mean, you've mentioned it already, but are the safeguards just not effective anymore as we expand this into what you called at one point? I think a circus of inclusion.
2: Yeah, and so you know, the the, the challenge is we we value autonomy in this country very very highly as we should. So what we do is we allow patients to say, you know, what we can say to patients is, you know, we'll consider medical assistance in dying, but you need to you need to try the following cancer treatments or eventually when there's mental health inclusion, you need to try electro, you know, shock therapy or something like that. We don't do that. We, we We go on the patient's word. If a patient says I can't live with this, we accept that. And I support that. That makes a lot of sense. But it also makes things very, very difficult. Um, you know, so we, we're now looking at things like like um, long, you know, long COVID. Uh, there's applications, and I'm not, I don't doubt long COVID for one moment. I know people that have long COVID, but it's new. We don't know that much about it. We don't have a definitive diagnosis. We don't have any of these things, and you know, people living in poverty, people that can't pay their rent. Uh, this situation with veterans that have vulnerability, including brain injury. Um, I just don't think we're well prepared for that. And and so I don't think the safeguards right now are good enough, because I think most of the people that are very supportive of medical assistance and dying tend to minimize the problem. And look, Ben, I, you know, I'm going to say something much larger here in which, I, I think there's a deeper social change here where, you know, the day could come when we look at someone living with some element of disability, whether they be wheelchair bound or whatever the situation may be in the future. And we think, why would they do that? Why would they continue to live in that situation? That would be a horrible thing to do. Um, you know, it, it goes against the human spirit of compassion and acceptance and, and it really changes our views of vulnerability altogether. and And that is one of the things I worry about. So I do think, you know, the national task has to be not so much how do we expand this, but how do we rethink questions of vulnerability?
0: My guest this half hour is bioethicist Kerry Bowman. He's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, we're talking about the always sensitive issue of medical assistance in dying. Kerry, uh, one of the things that struck me about this story uh, about the veteran was that medical prof- or people professionals may be offering this unsolicited advice with all good intention. But somehow the parameters of change whereby someone feels like they're in a position to do that, whereas I don't think anyone would have offered that option in any other way uh, in the past. It feels like that there needs to be some parameters here and perhaps the parameters haven't been clearly defined.
2: Well, I'm not sure they have because, you know, as a medical practitioner, and I've been in this situation myself, there really is an ethical and practical and even legal obligation to offer the range of options to each and every patient in relation to treatment of what they are facing. Now, is medical assistance in dying a treatment? I think it's not. Um, I, I think it's in a very different category than that. And you know, there's some people that feel, look, it's you know, it's available to Canadians. They have a right to it, and I agree, they do. Um, but you know, as I've said earlier, and I say it again purposely. Is, you know, when a professional uh, offers something, it may easily sound like a recommendation that your situation is so grim that I need to talk to you now about this option of medical assistance in dying. Um, And I, I, you know, I, I feel that the education on the question of offering this has really been deficient. And I teach in the Faculty of Medicine, and I don't feel and I'm not speaking just about my university, I'm speaking nationally, that we don't have clear uh, guidelines and ethical conversations about under what conditions should these conversations emerge. And, and you know, in many cases, who's, who's going to bring them up?
0: What now? Then I know we've had, you know, relatively extensive consultations on this. Although there was it was fairly time constrained, I mean we've talked about this for quite a while. Uh, again, it's about to expand in twenty twenty three. Uh, what needs to be done now?
2: You know, I'm not a fan of bureaucracy, and I think this nation has more bureaucracy than we need, to be honest with you. But, you know, we we may need independent and third party committees um, that are much more arm's length uh, to be looking at these types of questions. And and you know right now we're looking at mental health as we should be. Um, we're looking at mature minors as we should be. These, these are these are laden with ethical questions, um, you know. But I also think we we really have to go back and relook at at are there ways are there situations that we can rethink vulnerability? And I use that word very broadly, as I said earlier in the interview, you know, psychological, economic, social, racial, all those things, homelessness, all of those things.
0: Because I guess the ethical question here is that if Canadians have the right to medically assist assistance in dying, when is that right uh, come into play and when does it not right I mean when, who decides when you can use that right?
2: Well and you know and, and we're struggling with that and I think on a medical front we're, we're probably making much better progress. <clears throat> Where we're not making progress is I can't pay my rent because I'm too sick to work. Therefore, I'm requesting medical assistance in dying. The ethics of that, I, you know, a person that has an acquired brain injury, such as we're talking about now with the veterans, who also might be uh, might be struggling with anxiety and depression. You know, is it not loaded if, if someone makes this as, as an option? Does that not potentially sound like a recommendation? If someone has homelessness, if someone, you know, uh, has all of these things. And that's what we're really not taking the harder look at. And, um, you know, again, I think when we naively thought we could get through this with really good assessments, and I don't think we can.
0: Does the politics of it all concern
2: you at all? Well, it does. And I, you know, what I would say, and remember, I'm a person that supported this, you know, (sighs) Early on, the, the real opponents of this said the problem is, you know, once this is legalized, we're going back now. Oh, I'm forgetting my years here. Uh, 2016, 17. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm forgetting. I could be slightly wrong on that. It's yeah. kind of becoming a bit of a blur. You know, what will happen after this is legalized is it will just keep expanding and expanding. And, you know, uh, that that's that's all there will be. And, you know, to some extent, they were right. And you know the other thing that concerns me is—is is I'm not saying we need a, a you know a police witch hunt on this, but after someone has been approved, there's not much in terms of an analysis of how all of that came to be. It, it's still pretty open and unexamined.
0: So, what would be a, a good first step at this point, then? Do you think?
2: Well, I think what's happening now is that we have a larger national debate. About that. That's why I'm actually very glad to see that these stories are, are surfacing. And you know, these are tough times with a pandemic and a war in Europe and all the things we know about. But but you know, and, and if we hadn't had a pandemic and and you know, war in Ukraine, probably I would argue this would have had a much stronger focus on the national stage in our country than it has had. That has been part of it. It's it got overshadowed with big, big complex, you know, geopolitical issues and pandemic. Um, I think we need a national debate and, you know, we, we may need some more independent task force to take a look at the question of vulnerability uh, in a much, much deeper way. The problem is we're a bit polarized on this. There's people that, that say it from a rights point of view, and I fully understand that. And there's people, you know, some, not all in the disability, the community that say, you know, this is very problematic. And remember, even the United Nations has weighed in on this. And we've got other countries watching us now in terms of, you know, is this progressive legislation or is it not? Um, and, you know, the problem, too, is, is the more difficult cases are getting a lot of, of media attention, I don't really see a problem with that because I think they're legitimate. But what we do need to remember that the vast majority of cases you have complete and utter consent and autonomy of the individual person. Um, in many cases, their families, and there really is not an element of vulnerability. So you don't want those people to lose their rights either.
0: Kerry Bowman, we'll leave it at that. But what a you know, as always, a debate uh, conversation worth having. Thank you so much for weighing in on it
2: tonight. You're very welcome. Happy to do so.
0: Well, chances are you probably haven't made it this far into the day without hearing that Zeller's is about to make something of a comeback. That's a decade after the discount chain shuttered most of its locations across country. It's amazing. You know, I didn't realize they had up to 350 Zeller's stores in this country by the late 1990s. It was opened back in 1931 in London, Ontario, by Walter Zeller. The lowest price is the law was always its claim to fame. And uh, as many of us would discover over many decades, um, you could buy just about anything at Zeller's. Uh, You may remember ads like this one. New coordinates from Zeller's. There you go. Well, of course, Walmart came along in 1994. The writing was on the wall. uh, And about a decade ago, Zeller's all but vanished from our retail landscape. So now, uh, Hudson's Bay Company says it's going to bring back the name, at least. Uh, It's not going to be what you once knew of Zeller's. More digital, maybe some pop-up stores, we think, in, in existing Bay stores. So why now? and will it work? Joining me now with that is uh, Bruce Winder. He's a real estate or a retail analyst, rather, an author of retail before, during, and after COVID-19. Thanks so much for your time. A busy day for you, I know.
3: Yeah, for sure, Ben. Thanks for having me on the program.
0: So a bit of a surprise. I guess there'd been some hints, I suppose, but uh, what did you make of this announcement?
3: Yeah, um, there's a few stories here with this thing. One of the the issues uh, behind the scenes is that HBC is battling a Quebec company for the Zeller's trademarks. So allegedly what happened is HBC didn't renew the trademark for Zeller's a couple of years ago. And a family in Quebec snatched it up and opened up a couple of Zeller's store and a Kmart store. And then HBC went after them. And, you know, I think part of this is them building a case up to say, you know what? Hey, uh, we, we want that trademark back and we're willing to show that we mean business because we're launching it again. So I think that's part of it. Another part of this is I think that, you know, what HPC what is doing is they're using their existing assets to try to create a new revenue stream. And what I mean by that is they already have all these base stores. They've got lots of space, too much space they don't need. They already have, or I guess they think they have, the Zeller's brand. And they built a uh, brand new state-of-the-art robotic e-commerce distribution facility. So when you add all those things together, they probably said, you know what, hey, Let's give this thing a whirl. Let's see if we can create some business here. And uh, obviously Canadians uh, have a high awareness of the brand. And let's see what happens.
0: It certainly got a lot of attention today. So if it was to raise awareness, they've done a good job already. But, as, I mean, as I'm sure uh, we all know, nostalgia does not a successful business make, right? It, uh, uh, what, how is it going to look? Have they, have they had many details on what it might look like? Uh, you mentioned uh, both online and also in existing stores.
3: Yeah, I've heard that uh, they're coming out in 2023 with a few categories. They haven't named the stores or anything yet where uh, they would have it. I think they said most major cities but they're going to have housewares and they're going to have some home decor and toys and, and pet accessories and things start off small. And uh, you know, I think it, they're going to have a bit of a, a tough time though um, because you know, the discount world kept evolving after they left, you got Walmart who got bigger, you've got Costco who got bigger, you know, uh, a giant tiger has gotten really big wherever they compete, Dollarama, Dollar Tree, they've all strengthened. Right. So I don't think there's much of a home, for Zellers, and uh, you know, if if you're a Bay customer, you're probably not a Zellers customer. So there's a bit of a disconnect there in customers too.
0: Yeah, I guess part of this is also trying to tap into what is becoming a growing market for uh, in these inflationary days uh, for discounts. But it's not—it's easier said than done to resurrect a brand like that. You have to find, obviously, they have to go back uh, to suppliers and so forth. It, it sounds like it would be complicated to bring the Zeller's name back, at least to bring back the kind of things that people might want to buy.
3: Yeah, I don't think they really can either, because remember, Zeller's used to be a pretty big retailer, right? And then the discount segment... You pay based on the volume you buy as a retailer. So, you know, there's no way they compete on price with the Amazons of the world, the Walmarts of the world, and the other folks I mentioned. Because they're only going to have a sprinkling here online and in store, right? So they're not going to be able to hit any type of price point, I think, that would be attractive to any value consumer.
0: Is there still a lot of... Today, what struck me is that how much nostalgia there was for the name. I guess it it just goes to remind us how ubiquitous the the Zeller's name was in this country for many years.
1: Yeah,
3: it's kind of surprising. I don't think I've ever had more media calls uh, in one day than today. And uh, it shows you how people, you know, love Zeller's. They love the restaurant. They love sort of the whole Zeddy thing. And it really hits a chord with Canadians right now, right? But, however, as you mentioned a moment ago, Just because you have a certain feeling of nostalgia for a brand doesn't necessarily mean you're going to buy products there. You might show up for a selfie and, you know, do a post or something like that. But, you know, by no means does it automatically guarantee that you're going to buy merchandise there.
0: You did mention something interesting, I think, or I heard someone mention something interesting today about about the fact that, of course, a lot of people think back to the kind of shopping they did at Zeller's. And then you start to wonder, what could I buy there that I can't buy anywhere else now? Like what was its iconic stuff?
3: Yeah, it really, well, there, you know, the restaurant was big, uh, as I mentioned. And they they had, they did some good work with some private label and they had a few brands they created, which were good, but there wasn't really anything, you know, that that would be there now that you can't get anywhere else. I mean, Amazon has 800 million items on their website, right? So it's pretty hard to uh, to sort of be lost there, you know, and, and they, they've sort of, you know, I think they'd have a really hard time creating a unique selling proposition as well. You know, just something that would make a difference between them and the and the discounters today. I think they're really climbing a pretty steep hill that they wouldn't be able to make, uh, they wouldn't be able to succeed.
0: You mentioned something interesting before, because every time I set foot in the bay these days, and there are two of them not too far from where I live, I notice mm. how much space there is. So this seems like a, not a terrible idea to at least, you know, create some buzz around the brand again, get people back into the stores, because it feels awfully empty at the bay these days.
3: It is. I mean, the bay is overstored and overspaced. They don't need the retail footage they have. They have it, though. So what they've been doing, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, is they've partnered with companies like Mountain Equipment Co-op or MEC. They've partnered with Mango. You know, they've partnered with select brands to have store within stores. And that's not necessarily a bad idea. And I guess this translates to sellers, but I just think it's a really big disconnect because all the other brands I mentioned would appeal to their common customer, which is the affluent millennial. Um, where the affluent millennial really wouldn't see Zellers as anything interested them, I don't think on the radar.
0: No, I wouldn't, because just because of its heyday and when it started into its decline. If, if you know, if your teens were in the knots, uh, your memories of Zellers would probably be sort of the end and then the clearance, right? Not the sort of time of being brought to brought there in the days. I mean, this time of year, usually for back to school.
3: Yeah, I mean, Zellers, there's a reason Zellers uh, w- was in decline. I, I worked there for two years and. And oh, really? Zeller's was once a mighty retailer. And Walmart came in 94, like you mentioned. And then they were on a sort of a slow, slow decline after that. And, uh, you know, they're, they're fortunate that Target bought the leases for $1.8 billion back in 2011, because eventually they would have probably went under.
0: What was it like? I mean, I've always had a fascination with how those places work. What was it like to work on the inside of a place like Zeller's?
3: It was great. I worked at the head office in Brampton. I was a general merchandise manager for Seasonal for two years, and I really liked it. I thought it would be a train wreck uh, before I got there, but you know, when I got in there, it was actually a really kind of fun place to work. I really enjoyed it, trying to sort of turn it around, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was kind of fun.
0: Is seasonal is seasonal sort of Christmas stuff, or seasonal just each season changes?
3: Um, we had everything. We, I, I was in charge of. Uh, Halloween, Christmas, patio furniture, lawn and garden—all that stuff.
0: We're talking a little bit about nostalgia today about retail. I don't know how much time you spent at Zellers in the run-up to back to school back when you were younger. Um, many people these days, a lot of people may not remember Zellers too well. When they played the commercials today, the lowest prices, the law commercials—I was—I remember those instantly. I just remember—I think a lot of us remember just how prominent the Zellers brand was in this country. Of course, HBC looking to bring it back in a slightly obviously reduced and different form, but try to take advantage of some nostalgia for that brand and maybe tap into a little bit of that discount retail market as well. I'm speaking with Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. we uh, We've talking about The Bay as well and some of the struggles they've been having with the amount of space they have um, to fill these days. Uh, Bruce, I was noticing today that Target was reporting losses as well. Some It seems like some stores have done okay, Coming out of the out of the pandemic, those that moved pretty quickly into into e-tail, but others are really having a tough time.
3: Yeah, there's been uh, there's been some really big news out of the U.S. with uh, Walmart and today Target, uh, and, and a lot of this has to do with excess inventory. Um, these big retailers uh, had to order a lot in advance from the far east um, before they saw this whole uh, inflation issue hit them. And uh, frankly, they had a lot, way too much inventory, so they had to mark it down aggressively, and they're taking a major hit on profit. Sales aren't bad, but profit is uh, is taking a hit. You know, other retailers have done okay. Lowe's reported a decent quarter, et cetera. So it's a, it's kind of hit or miss, depending on which end of the spectrum, which which price point you're at, and and how your inventories are.
0: I imagine because a place like Walmart was famous for having for sort of its just-on-time just uh, system of stocking and so on, that it always knew how much it needed and how much it didn't. But I guess uh, COVID threw a wrench into a lot of that supply chain efficiency.
3: It really did. A lot of these big retailers had to uh, order earlier than they normally would. And believe it or not, some of the stuff arrived earlier. Like supply chains are sort of sporadic right now. So you might think something is arriving in June. Well, it shows up in May or you know uh, or you, you know you, you thought when you ordered it you, you ordered enough and by the t- when you ordered it the economy was okay there was no inflation now suddenly by the time the merch arrives you've got you know a high high single digit inflation to deal with which has changed the way consumers shop
0: yeah, I, th- I think we're certainly going to notice that this year with Back to School. All the stories are about how to beat inflation. Uh, Christmas, the holiday is coming up. This is going to be a different season as well if, uh, if the consumer price index stays as high as it does. How will retailers, I mean, you remember this, how do retailers adapt to this fast-changing uh, landscape they're in when they do have to order this stuff far in advance to make sure it's there on time?
3: Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, retailers will have to probably uh, dial up their discounts they're going to have to increase what we call the save story, you know? So if they were 20% off last year, they may have to be 30% off on something this year. And it's kind of funny because during the pandemic, a lot of retailers backed off on discounts. They didn't go as deep as they normally did because people were shopping at one retailer, you know, they weren't really shopping around and they knew that it was hard to get merchandise, but now with it being competitive again, and with the consumer being frugal, retailers are going to have to dial back up those discounts and show more of a save story to consumers in order to get conversion.
0: I guess it's a pretty good time then for consumers, at least in this time of uh, of at least belt tightening and, and discretionary spending down. At least, you know, you if you need something, uh, you can probably wait for it to go on sale, I imagine.
3: Yeah, that's going to help consumers quite a bit. I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, regular and sale prices, the regular price is a lot higher now than it was before the pandemic, considerably higher. Uh, and the sale price will be higher, but at least you're getting some relief based on sort of where we're sitting right now at, at regular price.
0: So into this, into this uh, co- complex and ever changing environment comes Zellers. So uh, as we, as we started this conversation, you mentioned that it's going to be tough for them. Um, any thoughts on what they might do with the brand? If it, if it is any kind of success, do you think they'll actually the Bay may actually try to translate this into more or was it, are they just going to float this and see what happens?
3: You know, it's really hard to tell. I mean, I think they're just going to float it and see what happens, but I would be incredibly surprised if this expands significantly, you know, and they, and they had like standalone stores. I don't think, you know, a lot of people were excited about the headline today, but it's not going to be the same type of Zellers that it was before. It's going to be much smaller. It's going to be in a department store. A lot of it's going to be online driven. So then you ask yourself, okay, what would I buy on the Zellers website that I can't get on Amazon or I can't get at, you know, um, uh, somewhere else you know Walmart etc and you know how is that going to work so when you start to you know it's exciting at the beginning but when you start to really peel back the onion and look at how they could win uh, there's a lot of doors that are closed.
0: So I guess what you're saying to all those out there who were sharing pictures of menus today that uh, the restaurant the skillet I guess it was called the skillet way back but the restaurant isn't coming back anytime soon.
1: Well, that's
3: my understanding. A lot of people have been talking about the restaurant today, and I haven't read anything about them bringing back the restaurant. Maybe they should. But, uh, yeah, that's definitely part of the Zellers DNA. People love that old 50s diner.
0: Yeah. Uh, Bruce Winter, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, no problem. Have a great uh, week. Take care.
1: <laughs>
0: Our guest is Zara Natter. She's an Afghan-Canadian journalist, editor-in-chief of a new initiative called Zan Times. Obviously a difficult anniversary, but from your perspective, um, when we talk about women's rights, I, we spoke about this the last time we talked, just about how women are increasingly being shoved back into the shadows of Afghan society. Uh, how was it to reflect back on one year under the Taliban, one year since uh, since the fall of Kabul?
4: It was a very difficult year for all of us, for all of us that has a root in Afghanistan and uh, the generation who grew up with some form of freedom in the past 20 years. We all felt, sort of we saw that our dreams, our hope for making, for building a better future in Afghanistan was destroyed in front of our eyes. And that was very difficult. So it was a very difficult year for all of us, but particularly and especially for women and girls in Afghanistan who are deprived of their basic human rights uh, to very basic like rights to education and work that is something that we don't have any country in the world so afghanistan is right now the only country in the world that denies uh, girls the right to education and that is very very frustrating to see that not a lot of uh, international responses coming in to just say that this is not acceptable that this should not be happening but um, i think most of the frustration and the pain come from that point that we really feel um, left alone, betrayed. And uh, we feel that sort of we are left alone with a group that uh, NATO and NATO allies were in, in in Afghanistan for 20 years fighting these groups. But now women of Afghanistan are just left alone there and um, sort of the countries who, for the past 20 years, claim that they are supporting women's rights in Afghanistan, that they would stand for women's rights in Afghanistan, are now just saying, oh, like this is very concerning, the situation in Afghanistan, and the Taliban are doing this. But the, we don't get sort of response that. This is not acceptable, that this should not be happening, that we are taking an action, that we are imposing sanction on the Taliban, that we will not allow the Taliban's normalization. And uh, there should be some international action against the Taliban. And that is what we are not seeing. And that makes this frustration even more for us, you know.
0: Yeah, I can imagine, and, and and for listeners to understand, I mean, Afghanistan has a very large young population. A lot of that population grew up. I mean, during the time that uh, that the Taliban was no longer in power, and and certainly, you know, girls who grew up uh, in a society where they could go to school, could go to university, could have aspirations uh, for careers and in, in the professions and so on, it, it feels like that's all been taken away very quickly.
4: Yes, it did. And that is the most uh, painful thing when, when I'm talking to most of the women and girls in Afghanistan, especially that now we have a uh, media running and we mostly talk to them, we interview them. And that is the sense of desperation that we get. They're saying that we were working, uh, even most of them, they're telling that even the schools are op- would be open if there is no career for us. And if the school material or the school of what, what we are learning is being changed to very religious texts. Would that really help us? Of course not. And the thing is that we don't see a bright future for ourselves. Even we get out of school, what would be our prospect? Because we know that the Taliban uh, limited women's work to very like uh, sectors in healthcare and education. And that is very narrow as well. So not all women in those uh, professions also can work. So that is a difficulty that we are seeing that this generation, they, for us, Taliban was a past history. We never thought that we would be dealing with the Taliban again because we were reading, we were just shivering, oh, like what a situation that our mother, our grandmother lived through. And we were young. So when the first, ta- first time the Taliban were around, I was a young girl and I was a refugee. Um, I was forced to, my family was forced to um, seek refuge in Iran and I was deprived of the right to education. And I, um, that pain, That trauma, I still carry with myself. And uh, I am sort of heartbroken to see that the same thing and worse than that is happening to another generation of women who really, really have high hope that we will be changing the, the, the future, that we will be building a country that we deserve to live in.
0: It seems so counterproductive for a country that needs economic growth to shut out half its population and it educated half its population at that point i mean i understand the theocracy the mulocracy of, of of the taliban but it seems so self defeating to shut out all these educated ambitious smart women from the workforce
4: that is what the taliban is about you know like we uh, there is sort of different level of talk with the taliban but what we are not saying is that you the taliban have no sort of ref, uh, flexibility for women's right, because according to their narrow uh, misogynist ideology, women um, are should be deprived of the rights to social political participation, the right to education, because they certainly believe that the society is where men can function, and they really believe in the superiority of one sex over all others. And that is the base for their uh, gender apartheid regime that they are building. So when we are seeing that women are not allowed to go to school, uh, they are not allowed to participate in social life and as you mentioned that their policy put half of the population basically under house arrest can a society function when half of its population is put under house arrest by the by the ruler of that country so that is the sort of thing that women of afghanistan are suffering through right now
0: i know that some uh, there are protests some have tried to fight back uh, what has been the result of that over the past year for those who have stood up and tried to speak out about what's happening
4: we are seeing a lot that they are being suppressed brutally. They are being beaten on the streets. Uh, earlier, we had many women came came out on the uh, on the streets uh, from uh, in several provinces, but they were harshly uh, suppressed. Um, We are also working on, uh, we are investigating the ways that the Taliban have uh, disappeared, forcefully disappeared and killed women protesters in Afghanistan. And we are seeing the number of outside protests are really decreasing because that is the level of suppression, the level of the the Taliban are making sure that women do not get out. We know that they have arrested many women who came out and asked for their rights, basically. And what the Taliban did was that they forced them, they released their forced confession, uh, them to say that, yes, we participated in a protest and we asked our right because somebody else was from outside the country wanted us to do this. That is the sort of treatment that the Taliban are treating women's activists, the women who just only peacefully, they're asking that our right should be protected, and the Taliban imprisoned them, the Taliban tortured them, the Taliban arrest them, and in some cases we have women who are missing. Uh, almost a year now, and the media, especially the media, is particularly uh, under censorship, under suppression. So we have a lots of journalists who are trying to cover the women's protest. They are being beaten. Their equipment's uh, broken. They were sometimes arrested. So this all go hand in hand, uh, the suppression of information, the suppression of women protesters, all of this are happening. And um, unfortunately, we don't get a lot to hear about uh, in the media.
0: Our guest is Zara Natter. She's an Afghan Canadian journalist, editor in chief of a new initiative called Zan Times. Uh, you spoke before the break about uh, just how hard it is to get information out about what's happening to women in Afghanistan right now. Tell me a bit about Zan Times and what and what the what the mission is uh, for Zan Times and what you'll be trying to cover, whose voices you'll be trying to amplify.
4: Thank you. Uh, so basically, let me start from the name. Zan is basically means woman in Dari or Farsi, and Zan Times is basically our way of uh, trying to reflect on the most severe crisis of our time. Uh, we are a group of mainly women journalists and writers. Uh, for the past year, we came together, we were talking about how we are suffering collectively and how difficult it is to get information. We, we are from the community and we know most of the women who are protesting, we are in contact with them. We are talking to them. So we are aware of the situation that is going there. But to get that information out was a little bit difficult. Uh, And we came together, we decided that what we need right now is the voices of women. In Afghanistan, uh, the the way the media and politics work is all the work of men. And men are deciding what is news and what's politics and what should be talking about and who is the source of the news. What we are trying to do at Zantimes is trying to shift the source of news uh, to the most marginalized, to the one that we don't get to hear from them. We are trying to see what is happening in uh, for women and girls in Afghanistan when they are not allowed to go to school, what is happening to them in their house, how they are suffering. Uh, for example, we are talking to women in uh, one of my colleagues, we are working on a story. One of my colleagues said that she talked to women in uh, southern Afghanistan, we are um, mainly Taliban uh, uh, stronghold. She said that this woman, they are saying that we are being forced to, uh, to have a mahram, to wear full hijab, even when we are in our uh, already uh, gender-segregated office in the very warm weather. But we are doing this. We are doing this because we know that the aim is to erase us. They do not want us to be be in this office, to work. So for us to still be there, even under a burqa, we are we are OK for it. We want our right to be respected. We want when we fight for it. And we are not willing to give up even if the Taliban is forcing us to wear burqa. I think that's a strong st- statement from a woman who is suffering a lot, but is still standing and saying, no, we are not going to give up. We are going to fight and we are going to go to work. We are going to get the script. And do not give up because the Taliban uh, harasses us, because the Taliban tell us that we, we have to have a mahram when we get out. So one of them were telling that when I'm trying to get a taxi, I wasn't able to get a taxi because everybody was saying, oh, you don't have a mahram. So we if we get you in a car, we will be getting in trouble. The Taliban will stop us and ask uh, for, uh, for your mahram and we right. would be in trouble. So
0: a mahram she- is, is a guardian, is that right?
4: Uh, Mahram, yeah, yes. Yeah. Mahram is uh, sorry. I just right. Uh,
0: that's a no, no. That's that's yeah. just to clarify. That's a male it's a, chaperone the So male, basically, chaperone, yeah.
4: yes, it's either a, a, a woman's brother, husband, uh, uncle. Basically, somebody that you a relative, a close male right. relative.
0: What kind of impact are you hoping this will have? Who are you hoping will read it and see these stories?
4: I think we are targeting two kind of audience. We are publishing in uh, Dari, Farsi, and also in English. For our Dari Farsi, our hope is to have a discussion between us, the people of Afghanistan, the voices of the most marginalized that we don't get to hear. For example, our aim is to cover new, to cover human rights situation from the perspective of women. Uh, LGBT community, and also uh, looking into environmental issues, the three topics that are under uh, very marginalized in Afghanistan. And we are hoping to bring their discussion into the table and enable them to tell their story, to say how they are suffering, how they are living, what is happening in their lives. Uh, this is between like also for the Persian one, I say the audience is more inclusive for Af- for Afghanistan, for us to speak with each other, to share our vision for the future, the future we want to build uh, and the future we deserve. For the English website, we are hoping that our English audience who are reading, uh, who are interested to know what is really happening for women in Afghanistan. We know we are hearing here and there, but we are not sure What's happening so we give them an opportunity to read from afghan um, women journalists to see what's happening and we are also bringing a narrative first-hand narrative we are asking our audiences to write for us about their lives so they also write for us about how they are living uh, what's happening in their lives in their own uh, words and we are just editing and making it accessible for an english audience
0: but Sarah, I mean, that does sound like dangerous work, though. For anyone who's been in Afghanistan, one knows that it, it is dangerous. You put your life on the line when you when you stick your neck
2: out.
4: That is absolutely true. Uh, what we are trying to do is to make this accessible. We, we are working, uh, so mainly most of us are right now in exile, but we do have journalist colleagues in Afghanistan. Our first priority is to safeguard our colleagues in Afghanistan to be able to, so they will not be going to the Taliban or reporting or covering their uh, press conference right. because we see the Taliban as a, the one that is violating, that is bringing this oppression to women, to marginalized people, and we are not willing to give a platform to them. Our way is mostly making this accessible for those who are leaving and resisting the Taliban's violation. Um so, our source is the pupil, the women who are living, so we are doing more community uh, reporting so for example. Uh, one of my colleagues is in northern Afghanistan. The way that she works is that she monitored the community. And she, like, for example, she, a, a few weeks ago, she sent me a voicemail, uh, a voicemail message, said, oh, you know, the Taliban had a gathering in the mosque. And they said that uh, uh, village elders, even if father and brother do allow their daughters or wife to get out alone, village elders should be the one not allowing them to do so. Um, that is a sort of reporting that. That we don't get to hear a lot and we are hoping uh, in some time that we will be able to do a different work to bring the voices that we don't get to hear
0: and hopefully politicians here who talk a lot about uh, protecting women's rights in, in afghanistan will have a look as well uh zara thank you so much good luck with your project congratulations on launching this it sounds like something that is desperately needed and i look forward to having a look and catching up with you again
4: thank you so much i really appreciate ben for having me this opportunity